The world is crazy, it's pretty clear. You need to know why, how it affects the lives of those we hold so dear. I can't explain everything, but together, maybe we can find our way. Aren't you tired of the violence, the hatred, the racism? We need a brand new day. And what about climate change, housing that's substandard but still unaffordable, and our public education system that favors some and leaves so many others behind? But who's going to pay? And then there are the jobs with wages so low they make you feel worthless as you struggle to pay the rent and all the other bills piled high. Yes, we need a brand new day. Is there enough hope among us to overcome despair? Enough wisdom to overcome ignorance? Enough generosity to overcome deprivation? Enough goodness to overcome all those who claim to be patriots but hate their government? We need a brand new day. That's right, a brand new day. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, only on WDIY, and I'm your host, Alan Jennings. That's me. I'm happy to be back with you here on Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. Daniel Patrick Moynihan said this, Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but everyone is not entitled to their own facts. When you try to solve community problems, which I've tried to do my entire life, you have to understand the problem you want to solve. How many of those people are involved? How many, what do they look like? How, is their, uh, how, do they, how do they make decisions? How many victims are there? How bad is the pain from the wrong? Um, what is happening in the world or in their home that's causing the problem? We did that over and over again. Very often we had to create the data due to ambivalence by those we elect to make our worlds better and not want to pay attention to issues that make them uncomfortable. As an example, we created a massive data collection system among all the shelters in Lehigh Valley. All of them agreed to collect the same data so that we could collectively um, understand what's going on with the homeless population. We could count 25 to 2,700 people in our shelters each year, and we knew everything about them, whether they had a drug or alcohol addiction, whether they, how old they, the moms were when they had their first child, how many entered the homeless shelter working, how many left the homeless shelter working, uh, and so on. So that data then was never challenged. We took it to suburban municipalities uh, in order to convince them that they kind of owed a little bit to our community to, to pony up because the shelters were full and they were full of people from the Lehigh Valley. They, their last home was typically Allentown because that's where the, the lowest cost housing is. But almost all of them came from someplace out in the suburbs. And we made the argument that the shelters in the cities are burdened. Uh, we use the city police, we use the city firefighters, we use the city funding. We got city funding, we got tax exemption and so on. Uh, meanwhile, the suburbs are kind of off the hook. So we made that point, we had the facts, and we made the argument, and we were somewhat successful generating some forty to $60,000 a year from suburban municipalities. So, you know, it was an effective tool. But these days, uh, there's just a different way of, uh, of looking at the world. We use data, facts, at least I thought we did. Tonight, I want to talk about facts. How do we ever find common ground without facts? How do we ever solve our problems without facts? So I've, uh, I've put together an interesting mix of, of guests tonight, and I'm starting with Jennifer Swan. Jennifer is a remarkable and fascinating woman that I got to know working on criminal justice issues. She is a professor of neuroscience at Lehigh University, been there for more than 20 years, I think, by now. And um, we're going to talk to Jennifer about science and what is science, uh, what, what is a fact to science. 
You know, we've got the warming of our globe. It's getting hotter. It's our fault. We know it. I think those are the facts now. But there are large numbers of people who don't want to accept the facts. So, Jennifer, let's first of all, welcome to the show. This is your first time ever, and we're, we're, we're glad to have you. I'm impressed by your, uh, your vita. Let's start with the question of what exactly is to a scientist, to a neuroscientist, what is a fact? Well, thank you for inviting me, Alan. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here and to talk about this. And, and I love this topic so much because facts are, in the scientific community, we know what we mean by a fact, and we accept the fact that facts can change. We accept the, the realization that as we get more data, it changes the way we approach the previous pile of data that we've had. And it is that data that leads us to think of them as facts. So a fact to the scientific community is something that we have amassed a great deal of data on and the data points in one direction and we then by consensus, agree that that is a fact. The more objective the data is, and the more and differing ways that we have collected that data, strengthens our argument that it is a fact. If, if we've looked at it several different ways, and it still points to the same relationship or characteristic, then we tend to accept that it is a fact. But Facts can change. And I mentioned this to you the other day. When I was much younger, it was a fact in neuroscience that neurons, which are the smallest cell in a brain, the, the unit of the brain is a neuron, that those were never replaced once you were born, that you got, had all the neurons you would ever get. And now we know that that is not true and that neurons do generate during your lifetime. And so that particular fact has been changed. So now in academia, you have somebody who is an arbiter of the facts or of the research that's been done. Is that right? I mean, like if, if I presented the data that I mentioned on homelessness, you might not even call that a fact because there's nobody in an official capacity whose job is to say that's a fact. Right? I mean, is, is that, isn't that the way research is done in an academic setting? In an academic setting, the data that we collect is adjudicated by the academics themselves. So I will collect data, and then I will hold that data in a notebook somewhere. I will publish that data in a paper somewhere, and the paper itself is reviewed by my peers. So people that have done similar research and understand how the relationships are between the data you collect and how it's analyzed. They look at the statistical approach that you've used, and they look at the way in which you've collected it to agree or not agree that, you, that what you state as the result of your investigation is actually a qualifiable result. That result stands until someone disproves it with a different set of data or until somebody collaborates it with a set of data that supports it. And that's how science proceeds. We are our own judges. We, we reserve the right to judge the information that is presented. At the same time, we understand that that is a great responsibility and we take it very seriously. And, and what would happen if you failed to do it properly? What, what would happen if your work was considered substandard? It was not, it did not pass the test of time. Is there, is there a sanctioning process that says, don't trust this guy anymore because he doesn't, he, he, he lied about the facts? Well, 
so there's two parts to your question. If the data doesn't stand the time, like the fact that I gave you about neurons reproducing themselves or not, right. then the scientific community adjusts. And now we thought this was the case, but now we know that this is the case. And we always know that there's a possibility that whatever we have as the current data could change with more sophisticated approaches to collecting that data. Whether or not that person is sanctioned depends on the intent more than the impact. So if the data was falsified intentionally, then that person receives a serious sanction because we trust that the data that is presented in a paper has been collected the way that the person says it was collected. If, in fact, the data was made up, and we've had cases of that recently in the past decade or so. Duke just had a case where the data- Duke they found University, the data, yes, one of the top schools in the country. That the data was falsified. And that was the result of, of bullying, which is something else we can go into. But um, if the data is, in fact, falsified, then the, the paper has to be retracted. Um, sometimes the grant or the funding that that person has produced has been is retracted. And, and it's up to the institution where that person is, whether or not they are considered to be a professor or not. In the, in the academic community, we just keep moving along. So if that person had falsified data, presented another paper with some data in it, we'd have to maybe see the records or have a conversation. But we don't sanction individuals as much as we try to make sure that the data is objectively collected and analyzed. This is, uh, you're listening to Lee High Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. My first guest this evening is Dr. Jennifer Swan, who is a professor of neuroscience at Lehigh University. That sounds intimidatingly challenging. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by uh, Cameron Afshar, the Lehigh Valley's economist, and Mike Miorelli, the editor-in-chief of The Morning Call, to continue to talk about facts. Now, this has got to be, for most people, the boringest topic ever, but the reason why I bring it up is because I think we're right about the issues. I think we've got the facts to back us up, and yet somebody's saying the facts aren't facts. And here's, here's the big one, I think, is, and that's climate change. Is the world getting warmer? Is that a fact? The world is getting warmer. The problem with analyzing that data is, as you know, living in a temperate climate, I mean, even today, right? It's almost 60 outside. Yesterday it was like 20, right? So the temperature oscillates and fluctuates day by day, hour by hour, month by month. And so when you look at the data, just if you look at a daily record or even if you look at a monthly record, you may or may not see a change in the temperature. But if you look over an accumulated record, if you look at the average temperatures for the year, that's where you start to see that there's a general trend towards increasing. And so it takes a larger view than the average public is used to collecting. And so it's difficult to see it if you just say, well, yesterday it was cold enough, so yeah. what do you mean it's getting warm? On the other hand... Climate isn't weather. It's not weather, right. It's, right. it's climate. But we have seen objective measures. We've seen the glaciers melt. We've seen the polar caps recede. Those are objective. Well, so then what they said, the naysayers said was, it's not our fault. This is a natural occurrence, and, and we're not doing anything to cause that problem. Is that a fact? There are ways in which the average person contributes to the heat that we are seeing in the environment. And there are multiple ways in which we are contributing to it, including cutting down trees, which absorb CO2, 
and cut down on the CO2 in the atmosphere, belching all of the smoke and things that we are doing, which cause changes in the way the clouds form, all the methane we are producing from our own waste and the waste of our farm animals, all of those things are contributing to global warming. And there are ways in which we can stop doing that. If we stop doing those things, would the planet still warm? That's the question. That's the jury. That's out. And we don't know the answer to that until we slow down what we're doing. So is there any relationship between neuroscience and, and, the, and the climate? I mean, are there connections there? Or you just happen to know that issue. The connection between neuroscience and the climate, I would say, is in understanding how people's brains work when they receive data that they really don't want to receive. So yeah. there's a thing called cognitive dissonance where uh -huh. people will cherry pick the data that they want if it agrees with them and discard that data that, that they don't really want to hear. So parsing that is what you said. People will agree that the climate is changing, but they won't agree that we are responsible for it. That's cognitive dissonance. You are listening to Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. Uh, my friend and, and cohort over across the room is working the machine. His name is James Johnson. He's the news director here. Thanks, James, for your help and support. And my guest right now is Jennifer Swan. She is a professor of neuroscience at Lehigh University. And we're going to be joined in just a minute by the Lehigh Valley's economist, Cameron Offshore. So stick around. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all of our programming possible. Becoming a member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure we'll be here for the next person in our community to discover. The many choices and real voices you hear every day would not be here without your support. Make your membership gift today by calling 610-694-8100, extension 7, or at WDIY.org. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. Welcome back. You're listening to Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. I have with me tonight a discussion about facts, not F-A-X, but F-A-C-T-S. I don't understand. I mean, I thought growing up when you got a fact, the fact was a fact, and, you know, there wasn't a way to refute it. I mean, unless you could refute it, it was a fact. Well, facts are being denied these days, and it raises all kinds of questions about how and what, how you respond to it and so on. And so um, we have tonight uh, Jennifer Swan, uh, professor of neuroscience at uh, Lehigh University. And joining us now is uh, Cameron Afshar, the Lehigh Valley's economist. Cameron, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, and thank you for the compliment. Very many economists here. I'm one of many. And apparently you know something. That's why I'm talking to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the world of economics, what is a fact? Because, I mean, science is a, is a certain kind of fact. You, there are things that you can and can't prove, and there are things you simply can't prove in sociology. There are things undoubtedly you can't prove in, in economics. What, what is a fact to an economist? 
You know, facts are basically, we look at databases which are produced by reliable sources like the Federal Reserve, uh, like the Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics, uh, like Census Bureau. These but if you are hate the government and you don't believe the government knows what it's doing, why would you buy their facts? <laughs> well, historically, these have all proven to be accurate by far more than anything else. It is the, the, one of the problems that I see with this concept is so many people think that if something has changed over time, so they were wrong with the first one. The thing is, sometimes these are not as accurate as we want them to be. However, at the time that it is done, it is the most accurate that can be gotten. And then we find out, okay, these were the errors in the calculation, and reliable sources like the Fed, like Census Bureau, will then report, report their correction. Say, this was why we had an error with what we reported back then, and this is the correct one. This is the sci scientific way of looking at things. It cannot be just, okay, because I feel or this thing is, or the Census Bureau had an error last time, every time everything it calculates is erroneous. These are, in all aspects of science, you look at data that are corrected after the facts, but when they came about, they were the most accurate one. If, uh, in, if you look at Hubble's calculation of how far the other galaxies were, it was significantly inaccurate. However, when he came up with it was a time that they thought only there is a Milky Way and nothing else. This is the universe. And he proved that there are other galaxies around. In distances, he was not as accurate. Equipment improved and more accurate ones have been calculated, not taking away from Hubble's unbelievably magnificent part, uh, contribution to the science. You know, the way they've historically have collected unemployment uh, information has been through a poll, right? They, they poll the people in the labor supply. They ask, are you looking for work? Are you working? If you say you're not looking for work and you're, and you're, look, and you're not looking for work and you're not working, then you're, you don't even exist. Um, they only count those who are wor looking for work and those who are working, correct? Up to 1993, yes. But so. since 1993, a new aspect, actually the old version has a funnier version. If you say you have worked, the question is, have you worked one day during last week? If you have worked one day during last week, in some cases, even if you haven't been paid, you are considered employed. Huh. That's the old version okay, that was designed that. to underestimate uh, unemployment coming out of the Great Depression. But since 1993, a new version has been introduced, so even the unemployment rate is called U6. U6 includes those who have been discouraged and are not looking for a job, and even a larger, much larger group of people, almost four times as many as those who have been discouraged and not looking, uh, those who have part-time, have accepted part-time job out of economic necessity, have to pay the rent. So, okay, I take whatever job is there. But they are equally competing with the other unemployed for a full-time job, and they don't consider this the job that they have, the part-time job they have, 
out of economic necessity as uh, their real job. They, it is just a temporary thing until they can get to another job. So when you calculate U6, all of a sudden unemployment uh, amount is, uh, unemployment goes up like from 6.9 million, uh, the official unemployment rate. However, you calculate the total unemployment rate comes up to about 13 million. And the, data, November. and the data can completely change somebody's day, right? I mean, you could you could be off by a few percentage points and, and make a decision based on the, the erroneous number and be out a lot of money or, conversely, be in a lot of money, right? I mean, so isn't the practice of the use of facts in economy, in, in economics, particularly fraught with, with challenge? Not really, because, again, you don't compare the 6.9 million with the 13 million. You compare each of these uh, unemployment, official unemployment rate, the U3 with the previous U3 and the U6 with the previous U6. And in that fashion, you avoid uh, running into erroneous data. Uh, the data, by its nature, has some error term, for example, uh, 5%, 3%, depending on the size of the samples that they use. So that is built into our calculation when we are looking at a database. We are saying, okay, they surveyed uh, 50,000 families in the United States, and this is the data they have come up with. They have probably 5% error in the data. So you allow for it, uh, uh, plus and minus that, uh, to come to your calculations. So, when you go, I mean, uh, you remember when Chairman, when Alan Greenspan was Chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, unlike Jerome Powell, you know, when, when Alan Greensp uh, Greenspan sneezed, the market freaked out. You know, Greenspan's sick, he's going to die, you know, all of our policy is going to change. There seems to be such sensitivity to some very, very basic pieces of information that it, it just it strikes me as being difficult to buy, and yet trillions of dollars every day, every minute, are being moved based on the so-called facts available to us in the in the business of economics. Well, the Federal Reserve controls effectively controls interest rates. They can change interest rates uh, as they wish to do. Right, and, and now the Federal Reserve has announced very clearly that it is increasing its tapering off of helping the stock market. Up to now, uh, they were basically in the business of propping up stock market and preventing it from falling. And now they have discovered that, okay, the side effect of this is that we now have a temporary but very high inflation rate. So they have made this announcement, and the announcement in and as of itself has an effect before they get in the market and actually reduce their buying and increase their selling so that they can affect these aspects uh, and change slowly interest rate, or at least they hope that it will be slow. And I guess what we want is to help that people will be wise in their use of the so-called facts to be able to use the right facts to make things go the way they want them to go, right? I mean, that's, that's you're sort of stuck with that situation. Well, if we rely on a source of data that has proven uh, reliable and also is valid, uh, then uh, we are fine. And I define that in the sense that uh, if you stand on a uh, scale uh, and uh, try to measure your height, 
well, this will not be a valid one, but every time you stand on the scale, it says the same thing. You're uh, doing it five times in a day, it would be there, but it is not the measuring tool you need uh, for uh, uh, measuring your height. So as long as the data is valid and reliable, and you have history of its reliability and validity, then that's what, uh, what, what we use in building econometric models. All the major companies uh, globally use these econometric models to predict what their market is going to be in the future. So it has to have worked because there's a significant amount of money spent on designing these models and putting them to, uh, into effect. Earlier in the show, um, Jennifer Swan talked about the very rigorous um, process in academia for you know, verifying so-called facts. When you speak to what's going on in the Lehigh Valley market, uh, what kind of facts are you using? Are you, can, you, can you consider them to be referable? Because you don't have anybody here on the local level saying, wait a minute, Cameron, you, you, looked at, look, you looked at that wrong. Well, one of the beauties of science is that you present what you have calculated and people look at it and call you and say, well, have you looked at this or have you looked at that? And with the collaboration, improve the results. That's uh, as the process of science. But uh, for Lehigh Valley, there are data on uh, unemployment, uh, employment in different categories, uh, number of new initial unemployment claims filed, uh, how many people are receiving uh, unemployment checks. Also, uh, we do here at uh, KA, uh, we uh, survey with, uh, uh, with, uh, in, with the Chamber of Commerce, we survey Lehigh Valley businesses and ask them about um, how many people they hired, how many they laid off, uh, uh, basic uh, uh, characteristics of the business and what they're planning to do in the next six months, and we do that four times a year. So we have a very solid database to rely on. And since we started this uh, survey in 1998, uh, we have gone through uh, by now three recessions. recessions yeah. uh, so we have a very good indicator of uh, how recoveries work, uh, how businesses uh, or local businesses respond to that different category of businesses, how do they respond? So these are, again, reliable and valid uh, facts so that we can base our uh, predictive models on these. And nowadays, of course, with the artificial intelligence uh, information in it, uh, we can even let the machine tell us, okay, this is what you are predicting, but if you put the error of the last time in or the previous time in, this would be the number. Which one do you want? And the machine now helps in terms of uh, uh, working uh, through that. give you an anecdote. I just uh, got on my car and I pushed the gas and it didn't go anywhere. It was a screen on my dashboard. I did it again and it just stopped, didn't go. So eventually I went and said, okay, let's read and see what the screen says. The screen said, the door is open. Do you still want to go? Yeah. <laughs> I clicked OK and it went. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called idiot proofing it, right? <laughs> the, machines, the machines are similarly in uh, econometric models with the introduction of the artificial intelligence. It looks at your previous errors and says, OK, uh, these are how previously the same model, what errors it made and how you can improve it for the future models. 
Cameron, in your world, is the is there data that you would agree or the, that you and your peers agree is shaky data and you hate to use, and, or is there data that you have that you are steadfast in your insistence that it's accurate? I mean, can you get to that point on a, as an economist with the facts? Well, um, steadfast is a uh, strong word. These are not black and white things. As I said, within uh, 5% accuracy, I go with a lot of the data that the Federal Reserve publishes, right. uh, the uh, unemployment data that comes out of the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics at a national level. At a local level, because the sample sizes are by far so smaller, small. uh, error terms are higher, but at the national level, within 5%, they are pretty good, and they have been this way through recessions and recoveries, uh, Republican and Democratic uh, government None of those uh, has historically, at least, affected uh, these results that I know of. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's at least comforting. You know, there's some data in your world because your world is as important as uh, as neuroscience and any of the medical professions. It's all part of what makes the world work. Cameron Afshar, the Lehigh Valley's economist. Thanks, Cameron, for joining us. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. With me in the studio is Dr. Jennifer Swan, who is a professor of neuroscience at Lehigh University. And knowing Jennifer as I do, it's got to be the toughest classes in that school (laughs) to have to face her every day. She's a tough woman. Uh, Jennifer, you're you're very interested in this whole concept of facts. Is is there any kind of point you wanted to make uh, in following Cameron? Is there something you were like, pick me, pick me, ooh, ooh, you know, with your hand up in the air? (laughs) No, it was very interesting to hear that. And I'm fascinated by economics because it's a field that we made up out of whole cloth. It's something that where we're looking at the way in which we create something, the way in which we value goods and services, and then we put an objective measure on it. But that objective measure changes every time we look at it. And and I appreciated the way in which he said, this was one way to measure uh, unemployment. And then there was another way to measure unemployment. So it's a fascinating field. I've I've long called economics basically psychology with a dollar sign in front of it. You know, it's all about you know how people react to the way things change when when the money changes. You know, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with uh, Mike Mirelli, the uh, editor in chief of the Morning Call, as we continue to talk about the concept of facts and why in the world the right thinks it's okay to ignore facts when they don't like the answers that those facts give them. I'm Alan Jennings. I'm your host. So stick around. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100, extension 6, or WDIY.org. Welcome back. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. With me in the studio tonight, as we talk about facts, believe it or not, and you probably think that's got to be boring as hell, but the uh, right wing in this country has made facts more interesting than they used to be. 
Uh, anyhow, Jennifer Swan is a uh, professor of neuroscience at Lehigh University and uh, very intimidating in her knowledge about just about everything. <laughs> also on the uh, phone with us is Mike Miarelli. Mike Miarelli, who I've known for many years, is the editor-in-chief of The Morning Call. Mike, I think you're doing a great job uh, keeping that paper coming out despite all the changes going on. So I want to congratulate you for that. And I know that's a lot of magical work on your part because it's a tough world in journalism these days. Uh, thanks, Alan. I have a lot of help. I have a lot of good people working for me yet. So, yep, it's a challenge. So when we talk about the facts, you know, it used to be that when science said something, people trusted it. That's not the case anymore. Politically, people don't like what they hear. They just ignore it or they disclaim it or they get their own facts. And that gets us down to all kinds of nasty things like different news networks that don't seem to want to pay attention to the truth and so on. So the you, I think, probably more than any single field, probably has always been, you've probably always been challenged on the facts. Is that, uh, is that fair, that, that the news media has always been, you know, kind of in the middle of that battle? Yeah, I think what the, what you were saying before, though, is probably uh, it's even more so in the last, what, five, six years now, because people have, and maybe even longer than that, because people have all have kind of gravitated to what uh, what they want, what they believe to be true, and that may not be uh, totally factual, but they believe it to be true. So if you write or or say what you think are facts, then. <laughs> That doesn't fit their view. They think you're lying to them. So, so how, <coughs> how do you determine that something is indeed a fact? Because <clears throat> it's not like you're weighing something on a scale and it's, okay, it says 2.2. That's exactly what it is. Instead, you're getting my opinion or my, my thoughts or somebody else's thoughts. How do, you, how do you determine what indeed is a fact that you can consider uh, a fact? Well, what we try to do is, and, and this is true, this has been true forever in journalism, as is, is you know, Alan. I mean, we try to get a minimum of two sources on a story and probably five or six or seven. Between all those, you'll get what, what we believe to be the, the truth or the facts, and we lay out, try to lay out both sides. That's become a little more difficult, too, but we try to get as many facts as possible from as many sources as possible, and credible sources. And I, I think that's good that you mentioned that because I don't think the average person realizes what it takes to actually produce a real news story. Now, when you say you get six or seven, you're talking about the things that are more complicated, complex kinds of things. The, the re regular thing, like if the sun came up yesterday, that's, that's not something that you need six or seven people to corroborate. Right. Yeah, and I, in fact, it's interesting because I just read a, a news story somewhere. Somebody printed that it, it costs, because uh, we're talking about digital subscriptions and the cost of uh, producing content, it's about $1,000 a story. Think about that. Wow. That's a lot of money per story. Sure. Now that depends on the story. Not every story is the same, but a thousand dollars when you you put in all the time and effort that all the people put into it, photographers, editors, reporters, is about a thousand dollars a story. So yeah, the, so the the more complicated the story, the more sources you have to get on it. So when when you I mean you've been in the business now, Mike. It's got to be thirty years, isn't it? About forty years. Yeah. About okay. So you're closer to me. Year, I think. The, the, yeah. has has it has the business as it relates to the facts changed is uh, do, did anything happen along the way that that threw it all into turmoil and you had a different way of doing it or has it evolved in a different way or adapted is 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 this, this are you looking at these things the same way today as you did 30 or 50 years ago that's a good question i i think it's it's changed in a way that 
honestly, to be honest, Fox News kind of changed everything. Yeah. Um, as far as Fox News was kind of, I think you would say, and it's probably gotten worse over the years, but uh, Fox News has its own viewership. So a lot of them believe what, what they're told by Fox News, um, and they have a certain slant of things. I will also say MSNBC is probably the same way on the opposite side. So that's changed a little bit. The um, One of the things that's changed quite a bit in the last six years since our former president was in office that we uh you know some things are said that were just not true and if you just print them and we try to get both sides but when you're telling the other side and it's not true you'll see a lot of disclaimers and stories and that, that that somebody will say something well that wasn't that wasn't borne out by the facts that wasn't borne out by experts that's not that's actually not, that's not really a, a true statement we have to make that clarification that that didn't happen as much in the past i would say I think that's that's a big change now. I I maybe my impression is wrong, but you know, you you know that I've know your business pretty pretty well. I mean, we've we've been sort of symbiotic in our relationship for many years. But the use of anonymous sources, you know, anonymity also gives you a sort of cloak to use data and information that is even that not might not even be correct, but might be deliberately misinformed misinforming. So it used to be that you wouldn't use anonymous sources at all. Then I think you started using anonymous sources when there were two or three um, people involved. How are you treating the so-called anonymous source these days? I don't know how much. I don't know if it's been that much of a change with using anonymous sources. Maybe it's maybe it's a little bit more now. We use anonymous sources because somebody's being put in danger. And and their information is is relevant and and we think it needs to be printed if it's, it's if it's factual. We use anonymous sources if they're going to be retaliating against, especially like in a job or things like that. But we really and we discourage that use of that still to this day. And and if anonymous source will take uh, let's say say some things that uh, are are unkind to someone, we don't allow that. You right. don't get away with that. You don't get away with saying. Uh, some some things that uh, disparaging of someone. If you're going to not use your name on it, that's 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 that has not changed. We will yeah. use it if, it's, if somebody's in danger, like an let's say an older person. We've done we've done that a little bit. You know, it's we don't use their names in certain things, and and uh, you know, danger or you know, retribution. The the story so kind of, that I saw the whole multiple source in in the case of an anonymous source breakdown was in the Pulaski trial. It got to the point where, you know, I was getting a phone call from a reporter, not necessarily a morning call reporter, and I'm not going to say where, just to protect the innocent, so maybe they're not so innocent. But they, I was getting calls about every other day. What are you hearing? What do you know? Did, did you talk to him? Do you know this? What you know? And, uh, of course, I was being very careful. I try to be as cooperative as I can with the news media. But it really seemed to break down during the Pulaski trial. And, and I don't know if you consider that to be the case at the morning call or not. Is it, I mean, are there well, times when you just cannot compete with, your, with other sources of news when you won't use an anonymous source more, more uh, freely? Well, you bring up a good point there, Alan, because that's the other thing with anonymous sources, especially with, at least in newspapers. I can't speak for other media, but in newspapers, if this if it's going to be an anonymous source, they have to have direct knowledge. There's no secondhand knowledge. You, you, we will not use an anonymous source. You have to have direct knowledge. You you have to be in the room or, or know exactly what was said, and you have to have, you you can't be a secondhand source. You can't say what well, I heard this. Now that doesn't work. 
anonymous sources have to be direct knowledge. That has not changed. That's how we do it anyway. Let's, let's talk about journalistic integrity. I, one of the things that I'm most worried about is the, the concept of journalistic integrity. Uh, you know, I trust fundamentally the mainstream news media. I think they, you know, there's an, there, I don't know if it's an unwritten rule or if written rules about journalistic integrity, but there is a, a safety, I think, to using the mainstream press for information um, dis, uh, dispensation and for sources like me to be able to feel comfortable using that. Social media is a completely different thing. It, ha- gives, it opens up a whole new world of opportunity to lie, cheat, steal, and everything else. What do you do with social media and the facts? Social media has changed, changed in so much uh, people's understanding of facts, I think. Uh, if you look at any one of our stories, in fact, I was just talking to my wife about this last night. You look at any of our stories, almost every story we put on Facebook, or every one of our stories, the comments will, ex- will immediately go to negative. Immediately. Right. With, with, and even, even, it doesn't really matter what the story is. It could be a heartwarming story. It'll uh, immediately go to negative. So you're talking about journalistic integrity. We, and I talk to my friends and other people who, who ask me about this all the time. Like, we don't trust the New York Times. You don't trust the Associated Press. You don't trust. I said, if you're in a news meeting with us, you would see that the fairness issue is so paramount in what we talk about that, that you would be amazed at how down the middle, at least our organization, I'm sure others, all, most newspapers are, down the middle we are with our thinking about, okay, what's fair here? What are we doing here? Are we treating everybody fairly? I can't stress enough how much we rely on that. And, so can you and, compete yeah. with an industry that doesn't give a damn about those things <laughs> but still, still <laughs> well, sells a similar listen, product? Uh, to me, to us, it's always been our, our, our integrity. Our, basically, our word is our bond, and, and that's how we operate. If we can't, we can't operate that, we can't look ourselves in the eye, and, and that's just not going to happen. Uh, not with a newspaper. Newspapers, I, I mean, I, I've been in this business, like I said, over 40 years. And never once have I heard somebody say, well, you know, let's not print that because, you know, that's going to be bad for this person or something like that. If it's true and it's a, a story that people should know about, we print it. I, I don't know how much of an observer you are and how much you pay attention to things over the years. But what was there a turning point for our world when – the newspapers became suspect, and 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 uh, you know they didn't want to believe you anymore. Was that was that Nixon, or was that? I mean, why is it that people are so suspicious about what they're being, what they're reading in the in the daily newspaper? I don't know if it was Nixon. I know my grandmother was a big uh, Nixon fan, and she thought newspapers were uh, evil back back in the seventies. Is that but, why you uh, went into it? No, not really. <laughs> but it was interesting, though. That's that's an interesting. That was an interesting uh, sidelight to that. But I, I honestly, I would go back to Fox. I mean, I'm not trying to blame Fox, but they, they kind of flipped the whole thing. Uh, they just thought that conservatives were getting a, a raw deal, so they, they went on air and uh, they built that model. And basically, if, you, if you're a conservative, they, the underlying message was don't trust the mainstream media. And I think that continues to this day. I would say Fox, what was it, mid-'80s? something like that. I think that's kind of started. It's a a fascinating topic, and what really scares me is that if people can use whatever they want to use and call it a fact, we're in trouble because there's nobody to really police the language. There's nobody to really hold us accountable. There's, you know, I mean, poor Jennifer Swan's got to go through all kinds of stuff. Two years uh, add on to your your research, but 
But Mike, you can do whatever you want every day, and it, it's not going to change anything. And but but this is just such a weird topic, and and the fact that we're even having to have a conversation about it just says so much about where our world has come and what it takes to solve uh, our world's problems. Yeah, I find it. To be honest, I find it very disheartening because we work really hard to try to get the facts and, and try to get both sides of the story. And you print it, and half the people, or not maybe not half, but a, a lot of people say, eh, that's not true, even though we know it's true. And it's not, it doesn't really matter what you say or do. You really can't convince them. But So we just do what we think's right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to have more with Mike Mirelli and Jennifer Swine. Stay with us. Did you know your phone is a radio? Tune in to WDIY anywhere on the go with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google store and turn your phone into your trusted public radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY live on your phone and play all your favorite programs on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. Welcome back. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. We're talking about the facts, what they are, why they're being undermined. And my guests tonight have been Cameron Afshar, Mike Mirelli, and Jennifer Swan. Jennifer Swan is a professor of neuroscience at Lehigh University. Jennifer? Yeah, I wanted to talk to Mike about uh, the role of the media in presenting scientific information. And the thing that comes to mind is the story that's in the news right now about robots reproducing. I don't know if Mike saw that, but it's a clear uh, example of a scientific paper being interpreted, you know, kind of expounded on in a way that leads it into a non-entity and then having all the rest of the media just pick up on that headline of robots reproducing, which is not actually what happened. So, so there's a fact in there, but it got distorted some way. Right. And it is yeah. difficult for the general public to understand science and for the media itself to understand it. So I'm wondering, Mike, how you straddle that or how your newspaper deals with that issue. Yeah. I, I, I have to be honest. I'm not familiar with that story. Mm-hmm. I must have missed that story. But I will say that one of the things that's interesting about our business and, and challenging for us is, is you our reporters have to become experts in a lot of different things. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and do it quickly. I mean, you're talking about really quickly, especially if it's a daily story, but even if it's a yeah. story that takes a week. You have to become an expert, and that's, you know, that that can be challenge, very challenging. So if we get some facts wrong, that we, of course we don't try to do that, but, you know, it, it's some, some things get pretty complicated. Now, I will say this, too, what you just mentioned about other news media picking it up and not getting it right. I hope we don't do that because <laughs> if we if we do if we do see a, I'll see a story many times somebody else did a story and I think we well, you know that's probably happening here let's check it out and you know we do our own reporting on it but we don't just go off what anybody else says so yeah I think the some of it the scientific stuff is is pretty tricky for us because it's pretty complex and you have to become an expert pretty quickly so when you get a scientific story, do you then check in with the experts in the area? Because you've got a ton of, of schools here with researchers that could help yeah. you evaluate some of that information. Yeah, so that's, that's the idea. Not a not a question. <laughs> 
It's a good suggestion, and we actually do that quite a bit. I think one of the things I think we're working on is trying to get more sources from our area colleges. I think you're right, Doctor. It's uh, it's there's a lot of experts that we could reach out to, and we do. But I think the more sources we can find, the better. And we have a lot of good colleges here, so yeah, that's uh, one of the things we're working on. What do you do with uh, social media and the facts, Jennifer? What do I do with social media and the well, facts? What, what, as a society, I mean, how do you contain? That mess, that, that you know, Pandora's box. I, I think one of the things that, that would be helpful is if we actually have a conversation. So I think one of the, the tragedies that I see in our current community is that we, ha- we are confined to our bubbles. So when I go on Facebook, I only talk to the people that I know that think like me. And, and when I go into the other social medias, that's, and, and so it reverberates and it reiterates what I already think is the truth. And that's true for people who think the other way. Um, what we need is to bridge those divides and actually have a conversation where the facts are presented from both sides so we can weigh in and see there, the truth lies somewhere in the middle of that. And, and it, it behooves us to, to increase the conversation between the two groups rather than to shut it down. I think that's the only way out. That is Jennifer Swan, the uh, professor of neuroscience at, at Lehigh University. Let me just, one last question. Does this tie in with cognitive dissonance, uh, or how does it tie in? It absolutely does tie in with cognitive dissonance, and it co- ties in with unconscious bias. And one of the things we need to be aware of is the way in which our unconscious deals with what, what you would call the fact or not the fact. And so when we perceive our environment, we perceive it through a lens that is colored by our own environment and the social groups that we, that we deal with. And so what I might see in one way, based on my environment, you might see in a different way. And that's always, always true. So if I see a black man walking down the street or running down the street, I might think that he's running for one reason, whereas if you've come from a situation in which you consider black men to be dangerous or a crime, you might think they're either running from or running towards something that could be a criminal yeah. activity. And and that is all based on our, our bias, on our, our internal bias as to how we interpret the facts. And, and the fact is that he's running. Why he's running is our interpretation. Yeah, that's a whole boy. We could talk easily mm-hmm. show after show about this this issue alone. I mean, how do you grab a gun, load up your truck, and go chasing after somebody, and then claim self defense? Right, exactly. <laughs> same exactly. with the Rittenhouse uh, trial. Same, mm-hmm. absolutely the same thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, okay, Mike Mirelli, the editor in chief of the Morning Call, longtime reporter. Uh, I've known Mike for many years. Mike, thanks for being on Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. It was my pleasure, Alan. Thank you. We're uh, finishing up. If We're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with some final comments. Thanks for being with us. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse. I'm your host, Alan Jennings, on WDIY. Stay with us. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. Each month's special focus highlights an artist, label, or event with a featured CD at midnight. That's every Thursday night at 11 right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and the free WDIY radio app. Many choices, real voices.
The following thoughts and opinions do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and opinions of WDIY, its affiliates, and or its staff, members, and volunteers. Welcome back. We've made some adjustments to the show, one of which is that I get to take a shot at some of the issues that bug me the most, and we're calling it Final Thoughts. And I'm writing to the people on my right. Last month, I talked to people on my left, and this time I'm talking to people on the right. Over the years, we've disagreed on many more things on uh, those on which we agreed. Nevertheless, we stayed friends and even found many community issues when, where we were able to work through things enough to do some good work together. I have lots of good Republican friends. Somehow, though, these days, when you put a few together and call them a party, the circuitry goes haywire. Donald Trump is a stark, raving lunatic. Pat Toomey is an extremist. Mitch McConnell made a fool of himself, jumping up and down from the president's lap. Pennsylvania legislators just passed a bunch of bills looking for problems to fix, using it as an excuse to limit voter participation. Do you really believe that Biden and the Democrats stole the election? That 7 million votes were the result of a corrupt voting system? Democrats aren't that smart. They, I mean, they'd have to pull off the perfect crime. Think about that. Astonishingly, some of my best friends remain loyal to Trump. He is an inveterate liar, and he's proven it over and over. He cheated on his taxes, paying less than most regular Americans. He conspired to attempt an overthrow of the United States government on January 6th. He profited from his presidency. If you found the actions of thugs attacking the very seat of American democracy acceptable, then you're not a Republican. You're a rogue, a traitor, an extremist. And it's amazing how many Republicans there are who feel that way. Your Supreme Court is about to set women back more than 50 years. The planet is baking. The income and wealth disparity in this country seems comparable to the societies of Europe that surrounded their royalty with opulence. Weren't you offended when your president called veterans losers and suckers? And why would you politicize a public health disaster? Trump's actions were tantamount to manslaughter. Your party, the Republican Party, can't survive the demographic shift that has been taking place for the past few decades. Educated people have been abandoning the party for years. People of color are voting Democratic, as they have been for more than a century. Those who care about the environment, teachers, young people, and middle-class suburban moms are drifting that way, too. But to me, the most unsettling aspect of today's Republican Party that really should make a fair-minded American turn is its tactics. I'm guessing they know that there aren't enough armed white men lacking college degrees and Southerners who are gullible to Fox News and goofy stories about conspiracy to win future elections. The demographics are clearly pointing in the other direction. So the party functionaries, led by the Senate Minority Leader from Backwater, Kentucky, have an endless array of dirty tricks they've been using in the tyranny of the minority campaign to undermine not just our government, but just about every institution that exists to improve the quality of life. Their only real agenda is to allow people, especially the very wealthy, to keep every penny they have, whether it was earned, inherited, or won gambling. Interestingly, elites... Well-educated leaders, CEOs, and the like are more likely to speak to the fundamental social and economic justice issues with a moral clarity that we rarely hear. They are taking the lead these days, and it's amazing to me. I don't care if there is some kind of cynicism around that. The lucky folks are not the problem. This is not about them. It is about us. This is a time when we simply must insist on civility. Might sound easy, but it isn't anymore. Put down the damn guns. Find another way to discharge your testosterone. Take a deep breath. We're in this together. There are those who don't like our government, and it is apparent to me that they are trying their best to make government 
look ineffective enough so that it can't possibly succeed, and then point out to people that their hard-earned dollars are being wasted on ineffective government. We already know that the rural states, which have far fewer voters than the populous states, have a disproportionate representation throughout the land. Idaho, Oklahoma, Kansas, and other sparsely populated states have the same number of senators as California has, and New York has, and New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. If your name is Machiavelli, that might fit your style. But if you're hoping that one day this country's leaders might actually cooperate, don't look to this Republican Party for any feel-good solutions anytime soon. These guys fight nasty. Donald Trump, the lyingest liar of all the liars, taught them how to lie incessantly and prolifically. For more than 100 years, every single step this country has taken in the direction of enlightenment has been led by progressives, with the exception of Teddy Roosevelt's national parks. Clean water, clean air, public education, minimum wage, single-payer national health insurance program like Medicare for All, Head Start, civil rights, and on and on were pursued by the Democratic Party. And the resistance came from Republicans. Luckily, there are often a few thoughtful members of Congress from the other party who are willing to join the good guys on a particular issue and actually make progress. Their tricks are the handiwork of unscrupulous hypocrites. If you're looking for someone to blame, the grand old party should be in the bullseye on your dartboard. Otherwise, I hope my many friends across that proverbial aisle might realize what an opportunity they have to get this country back in position to truly bring us all a better world. But without the facts, there can be no real discourse. And we are best at solving problems when we know all of the facts, not just the ones we like. And that, my friends, is a fact. Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Jennings, your host on Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. We'll look for you next month.